Now, that brings us to the second part. This is the covenant code. Now, technically, the Ten Commandments are not over with. Because remember, nowhere does God call it the Ten Commandments. He calls it the words of God. The words of God are not over with. Chapters 21, 22, and 23 are just as much a part of the Ten Commandments as everything else. The reason that they're broken up from the Ten Commandments is the people interrupted God. They're the ones that said, no, we're done. We can't hear anymore. And God gets interrupted. And so he needs to do, he goes, okay, Moses, you come up here for the fourth time. Moses comes up, and now God has to finish giving his laws to the people to send Moses back down. This is, the Ten Commandments was not, the, that's the other problem we make. We think that the Ten Commandments was the entirety of God's law, but it wasn't. It's also the covenant code that we're going into next. Now, the covenant code is different than the Ten Commandments. This is where we get really bored. Okay, this is where we think, oh my gosh, this is like courts and laws and all that kind of stuff. And we're like, just give me those Ten Commandments. These are the, what God calls the decisions. So this is what God says. Okay, the first part is this is what loving God and what loving others looks like in a general sense. Now what happens when people don't do that? Well, first you go to the altar and you atone for sins. But the reality is somebody has been wrong, which means there needs to be restitution. See, it's not just enough to say, I'm sorry. God never allows you to get away with just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry demands restitution in God's law. And so God is now going to give you court proceedings. Yay! Of what do you do to handle these situations? So now he's gone from, here's what it is. Just love God, love others. Okay, you want some general examples of what that looks like? Don't murder. Don't have anger. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't lust. That kind of stuff. But now he's going to deal with how do you make sure that people's rights are protected when this is all happening? Here are very specific kind of general examples of how to deal with it. Now, this is an exhaustive. You're like, wow, this is a really short court proceeding. I wish America was like that. These are examples. And so basically what God is going to say, if somebody does this, then you should respond this way. If somebody does this, you should respond this way. Now, just like the Ten Commandments, use your brain and pray and extrapolate that into other scenarios. <coughs> this is meant to be extrapolating in other scenarios. So the first thing he begins to talk about is slavery. Now, a lot of people struggle with this. They're like, what do you mean? God allowed for slavery? What kind of God would allow for slavery after talking about he's about love? Well, one, you need to understand that our slavery in America was just downright demonic. Our slavery was dehumanizing. It was about ownership. It was demonic. And you have to realize that our slavery in America was pretty unique in human history. Until the 1700s, there really wasn't slavery like what we had. Because our slavery was, one, the direct result of Darwinian, Darwinian thought, and that's been proven, that if there are humans out there, that if we're coming from lesser species, then there might be possibly humans out there who are lesser species than others. Therefore, we have the right to treat them differently. So completely ignore the image of God. Second, our slavery was based on racism. Racism as we know it today didn't really exist until the 1700s. 
This is a long, complicated issue, but if you want a good book on helping you understand it, there's actually many, but this is actually written by a Christian, and it's um, The Myth About Equality. It's a really easy, short read, and he does a really good job of going through where slavery came from, where did racism come from, how it's been in America, and that kind of stuff. It's really well-researched. But basically, you had to realize that slavery was based on racism in America, and racism didn't really come about until really the 1600s, 1700s, and it was an excuse to take land from other people that were not like us. It was based on colonialism. Now, that's a huge nutshell. I know a lot of you might be like, what? But read the book. This isn't about that tonight. <laughs> this is about the Bible. What I'm going to tell you now tonight is this shouldn't be viewed as slavery. This should be viewed as servanthood. And I want you to understand why there is slavery or servanthood in the Bible and why God doesn't directly, blatantly condemn it or forbid it. He does, he's not totally okay with it, but there is a place for it. And so the first thing you must understand is that there was no government to take care of people. In the ancient world and in God's covenant, he never, ever, ever, ever wanted a government to take care of people. The government was meant to protect your rights, not take care of you. Who was supposed to take care of you? The community. There was no bankruptcy laws. There was no welfare. There was none of that. How did you become a slave in the ancient world? First, one of the ways and the most uncommon way was through war. So if two nations go to war with each other and the one nation wins and kills a lot of people, they might take slaves from the other nation and enslave them in their household. Now, why did they do this? One of the reasons was that even though they went to war with these people, they would realize that these people had lost parents or spouses and they pretty much were going to die. See, today, as a single person or whatever, I can separate myself from my family and I can still survive. The American culture is built in such a way that I can completely be isolated and totally alone without friends or family. I may not have a good emotional social life, but I can physically survive and actually maybe do really well. I could probably physically survive a lot better without three kids, okay? <laughs> and do quite well without community. In the ancient world, without community, there was only death. It literally took the entire community to survive. I mean, you had to cut wood, you had to burn it, you had to skin animals, you had to raise, you cannot do that. If anybody's ever been on a farm, you cannot run and stay alive all by yourself. It requires community. And so one of the things, if you've taken a part of their community away from them through war, you would take them as slaves, and then they would become a part of your family. And you would help provide for them. That was the one way. You weren't just taking them to abuse them in some kind of like slave ship that you grabbed them and kidnapped them from another country and brought them over, threw them in the bottom of the ship in horrible conditions, and then here, and then just made them do the crappiest work you could possibly think of while you sat on the lawn chair drinking lemonade. You brought them over because they were abandoned now. And you realize that you took their family's lives. And so you took responsibility for their life. And you brought them back to where you were, which is probably only 25 miles at the most. 
because nobody did ships and that kind of stuff battles, not till the Greeks and Romans came along. And then you took them in your household. And guess what? The work that they did was the exact same work that you're doing because everybody did that work in the ancient world. And nobody, except for you if you were a king or something like that, could afford to just sit there and drink lemonade while everybody else in the family worked for you. Very few people can do that. And when people do that, God harshly condemns them in the Bible. Harshly condemns people who don't join everybody else in work. So the slavery they're talking about is taking people as ownership in order to provide for them. The second way that you could become a slave is if you could not afford to take care of yourself anymore. That you racked up a debt so high or you weren't making enough money or you had a horrible famine for the last couple of years and your crops just aren't doing it for whatever reason and you want to file bankruptcy. But there is no government you can go to who just excuses all your debt and might even give you a stipend on welfare or something like that and help take care of you. And I'm not, I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm just speaking to the issue right now. There's nobody to do that. So what you would do is you would sell yourself into slavery to somebody who was wealthier, who says, I need extra help and I can afford to pay extra help. And by that, they provide you and your family with shelter, clothing, and food. You got paid. And you would live in houses that were just as good as your owner's house. Yes, your owner might have a few more things than you do, but that's no different than maybe your neighbor has a few more things than you do. Because some people just can't afford to have more. But they didn't put you in horrible conditions of living states. They didn't beat you. They didn't exclude you. They didn't treat you lesser. They just took you under. And then you would serve them. Now, here's the other thing. You would often do for them the very thing that you did when you were free. You see, with the black slavery in America, there was no opportunity to become more than a field worker. And we see this with Joseph. When Joseph was taken as a slave in Potiphar's home, what did he do? He was the accountant for the house. and the, the, I mean, he did everything. He ran the house. And a lot of slaves, if they were, if they were great with kids, they would take care of the kids. If they were great carving and crafting tools and metals, they would do that. And they would actually get paid. And in the Bible, God is going to clearly command that after six years, they are to be set free. Slavery was limited to six years only. In the seventh year, at the end of the seventh year or the beginning, depending on the master, you would be set free. It was a temporary thing to help you get back on your feet. Now, I know that still feels like in our culture, this freedom, this ability to do whatever we want. That sounds like a good idea, bad idea to be that way. But here's the thing. If it's a choice between you and your children starving to death and being enslaved to somebody else who will provide for you and allow you to do the very thing that you were doing before you were a slave and knowing in six years you will have enough money to possibly get back on your feet again, then I kind of might prefer that than bankruptcy sometimes. Because bankruptcy, you might get your debt cleared and that kind of stuff, but there's no guarantee of anybody helping you out for the next six years. You still got to find a house. You still got to find a job. You got, I mean, you can now have a house, food, clothing, and a job provided for you. And that's why they did it. And so the other, the third way that you could be a slave is if you were born into a family that was already enslaved. Now, your dad might have been enslaved. And then you were born in his third year of slavery, which means in three years he's allowed to go free, but you're not. But don't worry, three more, in three other years you'll be able to go free. 
So you, if you were born in slavery, you didn't stay there your entire life just because you were born there. You just had to put your six years in too. And the reason is this master probably paid your mom's medical bills to have the baby delivered. And he's the one that provided your food and shelter and all that kind of stuff. And so there's a certain sense that you've got to work out because this costs the master to take care of you. No, and that's what we're going to get to later. Um, chances are the mother would probably just stay longer. I'm just saying a scenario if you would think about that way. The dad might leave in the sense of maybe he now has the opportunity to have a better job now and take care of them. But it's not like he's moving to a different place. I mean, he would still be there. But that's no different than some dads who've had to move out of state for a couple months to provide or whatever. I mean, we have lots of scenarios like that even to this day. I knew people who came from other countries and worked here for three, five, six years to make enough money to go back and take care of their family in another country. So it'd be no different than something like that. And so this is what slavery was. Were there slave masters who mistreated their people? Yes. But are there bosses that mistreat their employees today? Does that mean bosses are automatically all evil? Does that mean working at a job is automatically all evil? No. Yes, there are sinful humans who mistreated their slaves because they were bad. But that did not mean the whole entire system was bad and evil. This is a way of taking care of people. Here's the other way that you need to think of slavery too in the ancient world. It was not uncommon for people who were once slaves to then take slaves of their own when they were free. There's no black person who would have ever done that in America. You, can't, you will never find. I mean, maybe there's a few exceptions because there's always somebody out there. But overall, if you go to the black community and say, oh, you just take other people's slaves, right? They would be horrified that you say that. Because many of the people, there are still people today who remember what it's like to be a slave. You remember, slavery didn't really technically end until, I mean, technically end under Abraham, but it actually didn't really end until the 50s. The 50s, slavery was still going really strong in America through different ways. The, the, the government just found clever ways of masking it. And so the reality is you will never find anybody who was enslaved in America who would be okay taking slaves of their own and treating them in the same way that they were treated. But in the ancient world, that happened all the time. So that says something about how they viewed their system. And, that, and, that, and that's important, too. It's very easy for an American today to look back at them and condemn them. But when you hear them talk about their own thing, it's not in the same way that we talk about our own history of slavery. Now, the other thing you must remember, too, is you might often have a better life as a slave than you did. Because even though you're a free person, we know lots of free people who are barely scraping by, Right? that they're living from paycheck to paycheck, and not their own fault, they just don't make enough money or they didn't have the skills to get a job, and they're barely eking it by. So you've got a Joseph who's a shepherd out in the fields with brothers who hate him, and he's eking a living day by day by day. And then he ends up as a slave in Potiphar's home, one of the wealthiest homes ever, and he's got incredible respect of everybody. Was Joseph's life better enslaved or free? One can make a good argument that he actually had a better life than slave. In fact, many slaves would actually give the rest of their life to their master. They would actually choose to be enslaved for the rest of their life because their life was actually better. And your status could be high. 
Because a lot of times if you were the slave of like the president of the United States, then you would probably be one of his advisors running the White House, and that would give you an incredible status that you would not have as a free person. And this is why when we get to the Second Testament, the Bible, Peter and Paul and all of them say, I am a slave of Christ. Because to be a slave of Christ actually gives you a higher status than to be a free person sinner. Yes, and slaves are protected law because that's what we're going to get into now. But I wanted to give you a little bit background. Do not view slavery here in the same way. Does that mean all, like I said, were there bad masters? Yes. But the law made the masters who were bad very few. But in our American history, the law was actually against the slaves and did not encourage good treatment. So this is what God says, verse 2. Chapter 21, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve for six years, but in the seventh year, he will go free. There's one law that protects you. You're not allowed to be enslaved for your entire life unless you choose to be. Six years is not that long of a time. Okay? I feel like six years just go by like that. And I probably have had jobs that were way worse than any kind of slavery back here. Okay? And bosses that were way worse. If he came in by himself, he will go out by himself. If he had a wife when he came in, then his wife will go out with him. So if him and his wife come at the same time, they are allowed to go out at the same time. If his master gave him a wife, then she bore his sons and daughters, the wife, the children will belong to her master, and he will go out by himself. So he comes in, two years later, his master gives him a wife and kids, not literally the kids directly, then they had to stay six years to finish their term. Will that be somewhat inconvenient for the family? Yes, but there are more inconveniences for a lot of families today in America with commuting and traveling and all whatever kind of stuff. We, we're used to this kind of stuff in our culture. But if the servant should declare that I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will no longer go out free, then his master must bring to him the judges, and he will bring him to the door of the doorpost, and the master will pierce his ear with an awl, and he will serve him forever." So the, the, the man basically has a couple options. He can either choose to leave in his sixth year and leave his family behind temporarily and just wait for them to get done, or he can choose to say, I'm going to enslave myself to this master for my entire life. If he chooses to do that, then he goes to the doorpost, they pierce his ear, and he wears an earring that marks him as a lifetime slave. But this says everything. Because what it's saying is that this master is actually worth it. This master is actually worth it. Now here's the thing. This gives, this protects the slave as well as the master. It means that the slave just can't leave whenever he wants. He made a contract with the master and said, I'll work for you for six years, you provide me. The master's going to invest heavily. He's going to pay for shelter, clothing. He's going to pay for the kid's education. He's going to pay for the birthing of the kids, all this kind of stuff. The slave can't just leave whenever he wants without allowing the master to recuperate something from the cost of taking care of this guy so that he doesn't starve and his family doesn't die. But it also doesn't allow the master to abuse the man for a lifetime by never allowing him to leave like what Laban did to Jacob where he kept deceiving him into seven more years and seven more years and seven more years. Three times he did that. So what it does is it protects him. Both people get protected because both people are 
have a, a thing. And that's what the law is doing. But here's the thing. When you really read this out, it's really worded in such a way that the ideal situation is that the life of the slave with the master will be so great that the slave will want to give the rest of his life to the master. That's the way it actually reads. Because what it's doing is it's foreshadowing and hinting at Jesus. That you have the choice to not be with Christ. But the ideal situation is that you'll realize how awesome Christ is. That a life of serving him for the rest of your life is way better than you being free. That you want to make yourself. And that's why when Paul comes along and stuff, they call themselves a bond slave. Meaning that I freely chose to become a slave to Christ. Because my life as a slave to Christ is better than my life as a free person. And that's the ideal. If they're really, if the master's truly obeying the Ten Commandments and truly following the civil laws laid out here, then the life of a servant will be better as a slave than a free person. That's the idea that's communicated here. And that says something. It says, and Muzan says, if he designated for her son, then he will deal with her according to the customary rights of the daughters. If he takes another wife, he must not diminish the first one's food. So then it goes on and deals with a woman. So a woman is sold to a man as a wife. So I am a father, and I've got a daughter, and I decide to sell my daughter into slavery to another man. Now, the first scenario was, I can't afford to take care of my family, so I'm going to sell my entire family into slavery. The second scenario is dealing with the fact that I'm just going to sell my daughter into slavery. And what, God, what the Bible is saying is, first, the man, this woman, is never allowed to leave slavery. She's never allowed to leave slavery. After six years, she still belongs to the man that she was sold to. And the man must provide for her and give to her the marital rights that she's deserved, meaning a sexual, emotional, physical, spousal, healthy relationship. Now, on one level, it seems like that's really messed up because this is what people love to jump on and say, see, there you go. The Bible's totally degrading to people, first because it allows slavery, and now it's allowing fathers to sell their daughters into slavery to make a bunch of money, and she can never leave. What a sexist Bible. First, all marriages were arranged in the ancient world. And I know that sounds sexist and bad, but remember, that's just as much for the man as it is for the woman. It's not sexist when both the man and the woman are being arranged into a marriage together. Two, statistically speaking, arranged marriages actually do better than romantic, I want to be with her the rest of my life marriages. Because when we freely romantically fall in love with someone, then what are we being led by? Our emotions. And when our emotions change, we think we can leave whenever we want. But if I'm arranged into a marriage that will benefit the community, then I know that I am in this forever, which means that no matter what my emotions are, I'm going to probably try to work at it and make the best that it is. And what really makes a healthy marriage? Not emotions, but commitment and working at it even when it sucks. And then when I have a spouse that works at it, even when I'm a crappy person to be with, then that produces the emotions of, wow, they really must care about me because they're sticking it out. And it's not fun right now. 
And that's what pretty, emotions are great, and you should have emotions and romance in marriage. But emotions and romance is a result of commitment. It does not produce commitment. Does that make sense? So people who know they're in it because their community and family will never let them get out of it actually will stick in it a lot more. And, every, and all the statistics say that anybody who survives five to ten mar- years of marriages, the marriages actually exponentially begin to increase in quality after that. It's the first couple years that are the hardest because that's where all the emotions are really based on. And then when you realize that you're actually sticking it out and you actually have to work it out and it's nothing like Hollywood, then that begins to produce good, healthy, true emotions because now you see this person sticking it out with you. And so arranged marriages actually have done better. Now, yes, can you be arranged marriage to really horrible people? Yes. Does that make arranged marriages bad? No, because have not people romantically chosen fallen in love with horrible people who turned out to be somewhat drastically different if they get married? Yes. So you've got to be careful of this. Well, yeah, but he was a horrible husband, therefore, da 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 well, Yeah, but that's the same thing that happened over there. And with the chose. So you had to realize all marriages were arranged. So me arranging my daughter with another man is no different than what I would normally do. Here's the other thing. The reason she's not allowed out of it is because this isn't slavery. This is marriage. That's why she's not allowed out of it. She's not allowed to get out of it because it's arranged. Now, if he withholds from her and doesn't treat her well, then the Bible says that he has dealt unjustly with her and deceived the family into thinking that it will be something that it's not. Then she has every right to leave and she can be married off to somebody else. So the nose of the Bible still protects her. It still protects her. Now, here's the other thing you must understand. None of us have ever been in a situation where our life is so horrible and so iffy of whether we'll make it to the next day alive or not that we would be willing to sell our kid off into a family that might possibly give them a better life than what we can. This happens even today in third world countries. Yes, it will break your heart for your kid to be in another house raised by another family. But none of us have ever been in a situation where I have to choose between literally watching my daughter starve to death right in front of my eyes because I literally, physically, humanly cannot do anything to keep them alive. And the choice between selling her off into marriage with somebody else who can provide her a great life and keep her alive. Do I take the risk of her not having a good life with that guy? Yes. But I also take the risk of her not having a good life with a guy that she chooses to fall in love with and marry. Right? None of us have been put in that situation. And it's not uncommon to say, you're just going to be another farmer like me. But if I sell you to him, you'll be the wife of this guy and you'll have a much better opportunities. Your kids will have much better opportunities than I've ever had before. And this really is no different than any other arranged marriage that anybody else would ever make in the culture. And so it's very easy as an American to look at other cultures and condemn them. But one, that's ignorance, and it's also arrogance. Because who are we to think that just because we're born in 2017 in this culture, and not born to that, but we're living in 2017, to think that somehow our culture is superior to all others? Because I guarantee you there's a lot of things that they, there's more things that they would look at our culture and be horrified and justly horrified at what we're accepting 
on a daily basis in America. The list that we're horrified of of them is way shorter than what they would be looking at in our culture. You need to remember that we have cultural snobbery a lot of times. When we think that the way that we do it is way better than everybody else, when we truly are literally the only culture who does it this way, because most cultures today in the world still do these kind of things. Who are we to say, as the literal 1% minority of the world, that we're somehow right and everybody else is wrong because we have iPhones? And so the reality is this is what he's saying here. But she is protected. Notice that both are getting protected. The point of these laws is to protect all people. But the notice it also goes on and says, she will not go as a male servant to do. If she does not please her master, who's designated for her, for himself, then he must, or um, if she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to four nations because he has dealt deceitfully with her. So he's allowed to move her on to something else, but no foreigners. If he's designated her for her son, that's where the marriage comes in, he will deal with her according to the customary rights of daughters. So the idea is marriage. So this is a concubine. A concubine is not a full right wife, but she could move into that after six years. Or, I mean, that's just the language, that the father is going to make money off of this, so to speak. But we'll talk about why he'll make money later. So just hold on to that when we get to the dowry, because that will come in in a few laws later. If he takes another wife. Now, listen, God is not condoning polygamy. God is not saying, hey, he's allowed to take another wife. It says, if he does. You know, a lot of laws have nothing to do with God approving of it. So when we have this law, it says, if a man murders another man, this is what you're supposed to do. Does that mean the U.S. government is condoning murder? No. You know, but they have a law about murder. That must mean they're okay with it. No, 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 no. It doesn't say that God is okay with polygamy. It's just saying that he knows that people are going to be polygamous. So if he is going to choose to be polygamous, then he must not diminish the first one's food or clothing or her marital rights mean that he's not allowed to favor one wife over another. If he does not provide for her with these three things, then she will go out free without paying money. So she can make a legal case to her father and brothers and uncles and stuff and say, I have become lesser of a woman now that he's married a second, then she's allowed to go free. And so what it's doing is protecting her from being treated like every other wife in the Bible that's been part of polygamous marriage. See, God doesn't ever have to condemn polygamy because he's got tons of stories in the Bible where it never works out. And that's usually the best example of why you shouldn't do something. See, the laws don't really stop us. But seeing horrible scenarios of what happens when people do these things, those usually motivate us a little bit more than don't do this. And so that's all God is saying. He's not condoning. He's just saying, if you're going to do it, then this is how you're supposed to do it. 